Right. Will it make or break his faith? Will it make or break his faith? Uh, my first few months at university were not my finest as a Christian. I had arrived, I'd settled down into my new home, I was starting to get to know my new housemates in my new house, uh, and I was now independent. I was on my own for the first time in the big wide world, away from the loving and wise influence of my parents back at home. And so of course my mum, being the loving mum that she is, she would call me uh, each week, usually on a Sunday, and she would have this same conversation and again and again. She'd start saying, well, hi, Tim. How are your studies going? Uh, yeah, Mom, they're going all right. How are your uh, new housemates? Oh, yeah, yeah, they're okay. They're fine. Great. And then she'd always get around to that one all-important question. So ha have you found a church yet? And there would be an awkward pause. Well, you know, Mum... It's been pretty busy. There are all these clubs now that I can get involved with at uni, and that coursework's just piling up. And mum, bless her, she would always try to end the conversation on a positive note, but inside, she was crying. She was very scared for me. She was scared that that first year at university was going to break rather than make my faith. In fact, she told me, uh, many years later, Tim, I prayed for you every night in those first few months. And thankfully, God graciously answered her prayers because he got me into a decent church around godly guys that set me straight. But the heartache that my mum felt for me as it appeared that I was drifting away from faith in Christ... Uh, well, that's very much like uh, how Paul feels for this church, the heartache he feels for this church of Corinth that he is writing to in this letter that we have this morning. Uh, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians had been turbulent, to say the least. Uh, not so many ups, but lots of downs. Uh, until quite recently, most of this church had actually turned their back on Paul. They had dismissed God's word to them through him. They were fighting amongst themselves for worldly position. They were tolerating gross immorality. They were listening to the harmful teachings that were drawing them away from the gospel. We see some of those issues addressed in 1 Corinthians. But things had got so bad when, when Paul sent Timothy with that letter, 1 Corinthians, to see how bad things really were, Timothy couldn't handle it. And he actually reported back to Paul, and Paul changed his travel plans. He made an emergency visit to this church in crisis. And yet that visit by Paul, that emergency visit, it was a disaster. Uh, we know that from this letter of 2 Corinthians. Just look on the screen. This is 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Uh, Paul had made that emergency visit, but it had gone disastrously wrong. He was strongly opposed by the church, and he was humiliated. And yet he was so jealous for his brothers and sisters in Corinth that after that visit, when he had returned uh, to the other mission fields, he wrote a, what we call the tearful letter uh, to them. It's mentioned in uh, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears. 
Now, we, we don't have this tearful letter, we don't have it today, but we'll see in 2 Corinthians that that letter had actually done much to restore this broken church. The problems, they are slowly mending. There's still an unrepentant minority that we're going to see a bit later in chapter 12, and Paul's urging them to repent, come back to the Lord. But there's now also, thankfully, this faithful majority that Paul can address, who are once again accepting him as their apostle and his teaching. But they're still in danger. They're still in danger of falling for the lies of false teachers. It is make or break for the Corinthians and their faith. So Paul begins, even in his opening hello in this letter, by reminding them of some crucial truths. Let's come to Hello Corinth and chapter 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. See, whatever his adversaries, those false teachers, have been saying in Corinth, Paul wants to make it crystal clear to this church he isn't just another self-appointed spiritual guru. He is an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. And that meant, to be an apostle, that meant Paul had seen the risen Lord Jesus and been personally charged by him to take his gospel into the world. That's who the Corinthians were actually disagreeing with when they went against Paul and they went against his words. The Lord Jesus, their Lord himself who had died to save them. Well, Paul's established his authority. He now returns to the church itself. Have a look in verse 2. To the church of God that is at Corinth. That's encouraging. Paul can speak to the Corinthians as a true church of God. Because they had shown these recent signs of repentance and faith, at least many of them. But he also wants to remind them that they weren't the only ones whom God's concerned for. You see in uh, verse 1 onwards, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the hall of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a map coming up on the screen. Just give us our bearings. So you'll see in the bottom left-hand corner, you've got the region of Achaia, what is now modern-day southern Greece, and Corinth is that, if you can make out the red dot, it's got the big label there, uh, that's the city. Achaia was uh, the province, and Corinth was the capital, and a wealthy capital of the province at that. And Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of the other churches in the wider region of Achaia who were, unlike the Corinthians, far more impoverished and undergoing a far greater persecution for their faith. Because one of the scandalous lies that the false teachers were spreading in Corinth, as we'll see, is that God does not work in things that appear weak. That's what they were saying. God does not work in things that appear weak. Uh, the false teachers, they would have dismissed these other churches in Ikea that were suffering, and they encouraged the Corinthians to just stop supporting them. God can't be with them. They're so weak. And pathetic. And of course, they dismissed Paul as well because he appeared at times as weak as he endured great hardship. That's what they say in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. His letters are weighty and strong, 
but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Well, Paul wants to defend the Corinthians from these deadly lies that could lead them to denying him and, more seriously, to denying the Lord Jesus who had sent him. So in his customary thanksgiving, he always writes a a thanksgiving normally, uh, with the exception of one letter, the beginning of letters, instead of praising God as he normally would for the church that he's writing to, Paul gives thanks instead for the comfort that God's shown him when he's been at his weakest. Paul wants these guys to know God constantly works through the weakest of vessels for his purposes, for good of his church and for his glory. Let's have a look at this thanksgiving. God uses afflictions for good. And pick up with me from verse 3 as we see God comforts Paul in his weaknesses to comfort others. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. As Paul praises God, he makes it abundantly clear God is a God of great comfort for his suffering people. The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. But that word comfort, that can mean a lot of things, can't it? But we can use that word comfort to refer to creature comforts. You know, those little things in life that just make our day that little bit better. It's my wonderful espresso coffee machine back at home in the kitchen. That great love of mine alongside my dear wife and children. That's not the kind of comfort that Paul's known from God here. God's not sending him creature comforts. We can also speak of comfortable situations, can't we? Just everything seems to be going well this week. The family are healthy, job stable, boss not giving me a hard time for a change. There's a holiday just round the corner. That's not what Paul means by comfort, God's comfort here either. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Have a look in verse 4. What, what kind of comfort is this? The God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction in all our affliction Paul praises God here for the comfort that he's been shown on the very hardest the very bitterest of days you know when he's really up against the wall and this comfort hasn't been just for Paul's sake as well as verse 4 continues so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says to these guys, look, as as God's comforted me in my trials, as he's encouraged me in the midst of great suffering, that's actually enabled me to be a greater comfort to others as well who are suffering like me. As painful as those trials were, as weak as they made Paul seem, they actually made Paul a better minister. Not an unqualified one, as these false teachers in Corinth were suggesting. In fact, I think Paul was probably quite surprised to hear about how the Corinthians were uh, quickly dismissing Paul on the basis that he suffered in trials. It is as if they were forgetting the very basis on which they themselves have become the church of God. Well, Paul wants to remind them. See what he says in verse 5. For as we share abundantly in 
Christ's sufferings. Paul points them back to the Lord Jesus. He reminds them, guys, we serve a crucified king. A king whose crown on earth was a crown of thorns. A king whose throne on earth was a bitter cross. We serve the Lord Jesus, who himself said, if the world hates you, take heart, because it hated me first. Oh, the road to glory for Jesus was marked with great suffering. And it will be no different for us who bear his name in this life. Not every day, not all the time, but we can expect opposition as Christians in this life. As we bring his gospel to others. If the world hates you, it hated me first, Jesus says. But Jesus also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Paul can say, verse 5, carrying on, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Well, Jesus' sufferings, they weren't the end for him, were they? Oh, he endured the agony of the cross to the point of death to save us from our sins, but he did that only to go and then conquer the graves, to rise again to imperishable, eternal life, and that's the comfort that is now Paul's and the Corinthians, and ours through faith in our crucified Savior. That whatever befalls us in this life, whatever trial comes along, we can look forward to comfort with God as Christ did in the next. See, Paul's desperate for this church to see and understand hardships in ministry are not a sign of failure for God's servants. It's a sign that we're with Christ. It's a sign that we belong to him in his sufferings as well as enjoying in the comfort of his gospel. Paul goes on, verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Paul was greatly opposed when he first ministered the gospel in Corinth. Uh, In fact, things got so hard for Paul that God comforted him for a vision. We have it coming up on the screen, Acts 18, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That is what God spoke to Paul as he was suffering great hardship, great opposition, as he brought the gospel to Corinth in the first place. And Paul needed that encouragement to press on. But because he did, because he pressed on despite the opposition, because he trusted God, well, so many heard the good news in Corinth. And Paul could address these men and women that he's writing to as the church of God. Saints, holy ones, made pure before God by the blood of Jesus. Well, it wasn't just the trials that benefited the Corinthians. They did greatly. It meant that they they received the gospel. But you see what Paul says in the rest of verse 6. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, if this sentence, this verse, doesn't give you a bit of a headache when you first read it, well, then you're smarter than me. 
If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Wow. Let me explain what I think Paul is saying here by means of an example. When I first came into the hall this morning, I was greatly comforted to see that some lovely people had prepared some delicious food at the back for after the service. And because I was comforted by that sight, it means you, all of us here, can be comforted as well. Because it means that as you endure through this sermon, you can also look forward to the comfort of that food after the service, as long as you get to the back before me. Well, as God comforts Paul... In the face of trials resulting from his gospel ministry in Corinth, the Corinthians can take comfort in that comfort that he was receiving because it means they will experience the same comfort as well when they patiently endure, when they suffer like Paul for the gospel. It's as true for them as it is for Paul. And so that brings Paul to this great encouragement in verse 7. Well, he really clarifies it. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. As you share in our sufferings, it means you're going to share in our comfort. The comfort that God's made known to me as well. What an encouragement that is for us as a church, seeking to minister the gospel to KL in the 21st century, for for those of us here who may well be suffering right now in various ways in order to make Christ known to our family and our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues, that, that the God of all comfort who comforted Paul in his trials will comfort us as well. And we'll see how he will do that a little bit later. For now, Paul wants to make it clear just how bad things really got for him in his ministry. How bad did it get? Well, let's come to God's comfort to Paul in affliction. And we're going to start with the afflictions themselves in verses 8 to 11. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the, ex- of the affliction we experienced in Asia. You know, sometimes I tell myself to press on as a Christian, over the very silliest of issues. I'll get up in the morning and I'll stub my toe on the bedroom door. Ah, well, we all have our cross to bear. I'll walk into the living room and Josiah will have scribbled crayon all over the living room walls. Oh, we've all got our cross to bear. And then I'll get down to the My News stall down the road and they'll, I'll see they still haven't got the latest edition of my favorite car magazine. Oh, well, we all have our cross to bear. When Paul spoke of his sufferings for Christ, they were no mere inconvenience. See what he says here in verse 8. This is how he describes it. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We don't actually know what specific calamity Paul is referring to here, but it, is, it seems it's a lot worse than the run-of-the-mill sufferings that he faced as a minister of the gospel. And we actually get a list of those kind of run-of-the-mill sufferings later in chapter 11. Let me just mention a few of them. So uh, there we would see he had been beaten at least eight times, 
He, he imprisoned, shipwrecked, days at sea without food, exposed to the elements, in danger from his enemies, both home and abroad. And these were the run-of-the-mill sufferings. This episode that Paul mentions here, it seems, was a lot worse. You know, if you think Bear Grylls is extreme in his survival programs, he had nothing on Paul. You see what Paul says in verse 9? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Whatever Paul's facing here, he, he was quite sure he was going to die. Now, we have a, a wealth of resources these days to comfort us when we face tough, uh, tough times. You know, if I actually break my toe on the bedroom door, well, at least there's a hospital down the road where I can get it fixed. If I fail my exams, well, I can just retake them the next year. If I miss my flight, well, they'll put me up in a hotel and I'll get a connecting flight the following day. But this world has nothing to offer us in the way of comfort when we come face to face with death, does it? And that's what Paul's facing here. He considered his life was over. What could possibly comfort him in that situation? Well, now Paul tells us, Free comforts he knew from God as he was sure he would die in verses 9 to 11. First one in verse 9b. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, as Paul was pushed way, way, way beyond his own limits, way beyond any form of help that this world could offer, he was just forced to surrender any possibility of caring for himself. With worldly resources, he just simply had to have faith. He had to have faith that God knew what he was doing and that growth in his faith in the midst of the hardship, it was liberating for Paul. He didn't have to despair even in the face of death because he learned he was in the hands of the one who had the power over death itself. God comforted Paul firstly by strengthening his faith in him, his reliance on the Lord. One commentator puts it this, uh, this way, what satisfaction when we must turn from our own limitations to the God who has none? What satisfaction when we must turn from our own limitations to the God who has none. Even if it meant death, if it did actually mean Paul would die, he knew that with God, who knew exactly what he was doing, he would see life again through faith in his gospel. He knew Christ was risen. He knew there was life after death secured for him, and so he didn't despair. He pressed on, and he grew in faith as a result. That's the first comfort. Secondly, verse 10. God delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, hope, that he will deliver us again. Well, God did deliver Paul from whatever this particular trial was, in which he was sure otherwise he would die. Couldn't have written this letter if he didn't. And yet through God's deliverance again and again, during his earthly life, Paul was learning where to set his hope, his hope for life. You know, as all his creature comforts were removed from him time and time and time again, blanket, food, bodily health, Paul could see that to hope in the things of this world, 
to take wealth or pleasure or just comfortable circumstances and say, that's what makes life worth living, that's what life's about, that's my ultimate security, he saw how foolish that was. These things that we know in this life so transient, here today, gone tomorrow, and yet as they were taken away from Paul, he learnt instead to hope in that which is eternal, that which can never be removed, that of God's deliverance for him, and that is where Paul rooted his hope, as every earthly security gave way. Now he learned to prize glory. He learned to prize life in Christ to come in which he would know no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more of the hardships that we know in this fallen world. Suffering now, yes, but glory later. So why take a rest? Why become complacent when Paul knew his reward was waiting and not even death itself could keep him from it? So Paul endured, and so he grew in hope in that which would never let him down. The third and final comfort that Paul wanted to receive, he actually wants the Corinthians to take part in this one. Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. See, Paul saw his trials as an opportunity for this church to grow in a godly love for him and his fellow workers who were suffering. You see, many other churches in that region, in Archaea, they were praying actively for Paul, and that was a great comfort to him. He encourages Corinth, please, renew your love for us. Do the same. And not even chiefly for his own sake. And I'm sure it was me and I was being shipwrecked. I was starving. I was being beaten. I was being attacked by wild animals. Uh, If I told you guys about it, please pray for me. Oh, pray that basically all of that stuff would go away. That would be my first priority. Pray that I would be delivered from every single one of those things. That's not even Paul's first priority. As he asks for prayer from this church... See uh, what he says. Paul says, pray for me, but do it so you can be more in step with the love the rest of the church is showing me. Have a look in, sorry, I've lost my place. Uh, Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through many. Paul's chief concern was that this church pray for them so that they might be closer to their fellow brothers and sisters who were praying for Paul as well and so grow in their love not only for him but for Christ's church elsewhere. And so the third comfort, a growth in love not just for Paul but for God's church. These three things, faith, hope, Love. These were the comforts that God made known to Paul in the midst of his trials. And why were they so special? What's so valuable about faith, hope, and love? The fact that they will bring forth eternal glory as we remain faithful to Christ. As we hope far more for his kingdom to come than the things that we enjoy in this life. And as we show the same love that he showed us, showing ourselves to basically belong to him. Paul faced floggings, shipwrecks, starvation, and yet he was able to endure as God comforted him, growing him in faith, hope, love, 
And I find that incredibly encouraging. You know, our sufferings for the gospel here, they may well be a lot tamer than Paul's, at least for the moment anyway. And yet we still know the same God of comfort that Paul did. Perhaps today, I'm speaking to someone who's been mistreated by your own family members because they don't like your faith in Jesus, and they don't like the fact that it's taken the place of your otherwise traditional household religion. Maybe I'm speaking to someone today who's been made fun of at college by your peers as you've worked to make Christ known with the Christian fellowship. Or you've been mocked by your colleagues at work when you've invited them to a guest night. I said, are you serious? And we wonder ourselves, well, what is the point? One family shared with me just a little while ago uh, that often their neighbors in their condominium would avoid them. Avoid them completely because they were known as the Christian family in their condo block. Too zealous, too bold, too keen to talk about Jesus and salvation through faith in him. Well, if that's you today, or trust me, it will be you one day, be encouraged. In Paul's weakest moments when he was really up against the wall, those were the times God grew him as a Christian in his faith, in his hope, in his love. The trials that we endure here in KL for the sake of the gospel, they will never be a waste of time. It will be a blessing for us, and it may well be the way in which God, as he did with Paul and the Corinthians, my afflictions are for your comfort, for your salvation. It might be that our afflictions that we face for the sake of the gospel here, will be for the comfort and salvation of our friends, of our neighbors, of our colleagues, that God will show his strength in our weakness and he'll use it to draw others to eternal life in his son. Well, Paul knew that there was a dangerous alternative for this church. For even the faithful that he's speaking to here, he knew those lies of the false teachers that were dismissing Paul as weak, You know, encouraging the Corinthians to abandon the true gospel rather than suffering faithfully for it. And so as he closes just this opening section of the letter, he urges this church, remain faithful to me. Remain faithful to the gospel and share in sufferings where necessary. Again, Paul gets quite defensive. His plea, accept your suffering apostle. Come to verse 12. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. This is what Paul's been getting at all along in the hardships, the trials, his seemingly weak appearance in these simple gospel worlds, that that's been God's work through him for the sake of the Corinthians. He had behaved in godly sincerity. Every time Paul was tempted to tone down the message of his gospel, to speak just a little bit less boldly, so to save him from that next severe beating, God strengthened him to remain sincere. Unlike the false teachers that he describes here, nothing of God's grace in their ministry, full of earthly wisdom. We'll see from the rest of this letter, some were teaching rule-keeping. Oh, keep the rules! You'll get right with God that way. Some were teaching license. Break the rules. God will love you anyway. 
And so when Paul came and preached Christ crucified in the face of those more popular and more acceptable teachings in Corinth, he was despised. And yet the Corinthian church knew, as Paul writes here, he never shifted. He never moved away from the true gospel. He never wavered, despite the beatings, despite the threats. Verse 13, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us. This church, they were acknowledging Paul in part. They were starting to accept him again, but their devotion was split. These other teachings in Corinth that were popular, they were attracted. This earthly wisdom that doesn't bring any hope, but didn't bring any opposition either. And friends, today there are plenty of alternative, supposedly Christian messages in the church that might seem attractive, but have nothing of the gospel in them. Here are a couple coming up. Don't just accept whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. Get up today and say, this is going to be a great day. I'm excited about my future. Something good is going to happen to me. Now, I know they're very cheesy, but friends, what's even more disturbing is that these are real mission statements from those who say we're churches, Christian churches in the world today. You're not going to upset anyone by saying that to them, are you? But the real gospel of Christ crucified, that we're sinners in need of forgiveness and reconciliation with the God who made us before the day he judges us, and the only hope we have is to rely entirely on the gift of his son given to live the life we failed to live and then die the death we deserve, that we might have life. And friends, that true gospel, the gospel of Paul, Christ crucified, it is as offensive today to our society as it was in the Corinthian city. Deeply offends the pride of man, our our world that says, oh, we're essentially good. We We just got to try a bit harder and we'll be okay. And the gospel, of course, flies in the face of that. Well, friends, like the Corinthians, We, as a church, have to decide. Are we going to remain faithful to Paul's words here? Are we going to remain faithful to the true gospel of our Lord? Are we going to suffer for it where necessary, when we're put up against the hard times? Or are we going to buy into this nonsense? Just tell people the lies that they want to hear so that we can have a slightly more comfortable time in the here and now. No, very much like me back at uni in those first few months, in my half-hearted devotion to Jesus. I was hesitant to even be seen going to church, let alone sharing the gospel, because I was so afraid. The reason I was so slow to go to church was because I was afraid what those new housemates might think of me as we were just building relationships. Because they thought that this Jesus that I knew and loved, the Lord who had died for me, they thought, he's just weird. Tim, you're so old-fashioned, so dumb for, for, for following him. And I was more concerned to gain their respect as my housemates rather than honor the Lord who gave his life that I might live. I wonder, are we hesitant to bring our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues to smack on a Sunday morning or to the guest night at the end of the month, not because 
they'll just say no, but because they might say yes. And we know that if they say yes and they come along, they're going to hear the gospel, this same offensive message of Christ crucified, of you cannot save yourself. You must trust in Christ as Lord. And we're concerned that if they hear that and they find out that we believe that, they're not going to like us anymore. And we're going to lose respect in their eyes. Friends, that may well happen, as it did to Paul, as it would to the Corinthians. And when you are afraid of those hardships, when we're full of the fear of man, remember these words, that God is the God who comforts his suffering servants, who grows his suffering servants in faith, in hope and love as we endure for him, who alone can grant us the true rest that we and our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors need from the hardships of this life, again through faith in his son and his eternal rest. And it's Paul's desire for this church that they would know that eternal rest with him, having remained faithful, having endured, having suffered for the gospel. See how he closes in verse 14. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul wanted the Corinthians with him, even in the suffering, so that they would share with him in the glory of God's kingdom to come. He wanted them to make it, not break the faith in fear of suffering. He wanted them to repent of their fear and cowardice and to resolve to know nothing but Christ crucified. As we begin in this letter and work through over the next few months, my prayer for us is the same, that we would rejoice to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, whatever that might mean in terms of what we must endure as we give ourselves to the service of this gospel and as we know the God, the God of all comfort, who sustains his suffering servants. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your great wisdom is not the wisdom of this world, that you wonderfully work through the weakness and the suffering of your servants as you work so mightily through the weakness and the suffering of your Son, our Lord Jesus, crucified, your King for the world, your King for us. I pray that you would help us as we work through this word and in response to what we've seen today to rejoice in Christ and him crucified, to remain faithful to this true gospel, not to waver, even as the threats come, no matter what we might have to endure, that you would graciously comfort us, you would build us up in faith and hope and love that we will be looking far more to things that are eternal and our desire to see our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues sharing in those eternal things through Christ our Lord will be greater than the fear that we might have of losing their respect. Commit ourselves into your hands, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.